0: on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy
1: Train Radio? You look like hell, and I could look the same.
2: What's the photo for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! truth,
0: truth. truth
2: true i love scotch i love scotch scotch has got scotch here it goes down down into my belly what's it open
1: Say it.
0: Say it. 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 Don't mess with me. I'm one crazy nooboo.
2: Hi, I'm Victor Miller, and I was Jason's father, and I wrote Friday the 13th. I got three Emmys, four Writers Guild Awards, Um, spent a lifetime in television, and uh, have not regretted it one bit. But go to Crazy Train Radio. If you can say it, find it. Don't miss it, because if you miss it, you will have lost an incredible adventure.
0: Folks, it's your least favorite host in a podcast world, Croc Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, childrens of all ages. This next guest is a winner of three Emmys and four Writers Guild of America awards. That was one during his. 20-plus years in the soap opera field. He is also an author with over 11 published books and a few other projects to boot, nine of them, actually. But let's not forget his voiceover work over time. Right. Our fan base would probably know him best as the writer of the original Friday the 13th screenplay from 1980 and yes we will touch on it but certain things we aren't going to touch on because it wouldn't be a smart move not only for this man but just in general because we all know what's going on and i totally respect that but this guest is victor miller how you doing sir
2: i'm doing very well thank you
0: well that's awesome always a good thing to hear i'm personally glad we were finally able to connect, and besides the obvious, what is going on in the world of Victor Miller?
2: In Victor Miller's world, uh, <clears throat> it's a very small world. It's uh, composed of uh, a house, two dogs, and one wife, uh, <laughs> and we're com- and we're coming up on our sixtieth wedding anniversary. Uh,
0: Mazeltoff.
2: and I will be eighty-two on May fourteenth. Um, and I've, I've just been slacking, but, um, if any of your listeners need, listeners need a voiceover, I work very cheap and I have a wonderful voice.
0: Yes. And you certainly seem to have the old school radio voice, the way you did that. And I truly appreciate that.
2: I would certainly hope so. Yes.
0: Well, as I said, with the upcoming birthday and the upcoming anniversary, Mazel tov to you and the missus. That is certainly some positive news in your world on both aspects. I'm going to say and guess that the wife is a saint for being with you for almost 60 years, correct?
2: I would say yes. She has several orders of the halo um, and and lots of medals for being just uh, the most patient, wonderful uh, wife who has, by the way, uh, always done, since we were married in 1962, I tried to do the checkbook once and failed, and she's been doing that now for all these years um, because I don't do numbers, I do words. Yeah, go figure.
0: Since I said in the introduction you've been known for writing, go figure. Now, when you said that, I immediately thought of an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond. Ah. tried. Where he tried to do the checkbook, he ended up screwing up so bad. He had a backup checkbook and a backup checkbook to that to make it look good, all in a sense of comedy. But you weren't screwing things up that bad, were you?
2: No, I and uh, my wife, who'd who'd uh, taken an accounting class, um, uh, instantly said, "No, I don't. I don't think uh, we're going to work this way. So let me do the money and you do the words."
0: Fair enough.
2: Sixty years of that's worked.
0: And it sounds like over those 60 years, it's been a yes, dear, and whatever you say, dear, with a happy wife, happy life.
2: And, oh, have you opened another uh, Venmo account? (laughs) That's good. That, That happens every once in a while, yes. Oh, boy. But
0: I was diving a little bit into your history, and it's quite entertaining in a positive way. Because, as I said, everyone knows you as the original writer for the Friday the 13th. But I guess what I am looking for word wise is that it's an eclectic resume, if I may say so. Oh yeah. And one of the funnier things I would say that came from your particular story is that you weren't a horror fan, but you had said somewhere along the lines of some of the best horror writers may not be fans, but they might be scaredy cats. Would you agree with that statement?
2: 100%. Yes. No, I, uh, I had my mother look under the bed uh, until I was about 10 or 11, I think. Um, And (laughs) years later, I would replace uh, the the non-entity underneath my bed with Kevin Bacon uh, in the bed. And so everything has its uh, genesis somewhere in the horrible life of uh, the ab- average horror writer.
0: And the reason you know I got a chuckle out of that is when, and I forget which conversation I heard you having, but you mentioned that you had slept with a nightlight or something like that until you went to boarding school. Probably.
2: Well, it, it, either a nightlight or the bathroom light was on with the door slightly open.
0: Okay, and that military or boarding school was Milton Academy, correct?
2: That's right, a a uh, a boarding school for for the well met young man and or uh, with the well met young ladies across the street.
0: Well, with that being said, it's funny that you say that because I just had a chat on Sunday with actor and stuntman and man in many trades, Marshall Teague, and he was someone who served in the military and did military school and all that stuff. But would you go in a boarding school? So I was curious to know, since I don't know too much about boarding schools. But looking back from your point of view, do you think that it was probably a good thing going to boarding school and helping that or that helping shape the person you became?
2: Oh, Lord, I have no clue because uh, I have no idea who I'd be if I had gone to Huntington High. Um, And uh, but it's um, it's. It was that was what was done in uh, in my parents' uh, minds. My sister went to boarding school. My older brother went to boarding school, and then, um, even though I was uh, not exactly thrilled with the concept, uh, I guess I was supposed to do that. So we went and visited a lot of boarding schools, and I ended up at Milton Academy, um, and uh, I think that that's that's part of my worldview, which is. Um, Everywhere I was, I didn't belong. Hmm. It just I I didn't feel like I, like I fit in fit in, but I could also uh, fake it too, um, which is uh, I guess part of the fiction writer. Um, you know that uh, I didn't I didn't just shriek and yell for five years, um, but I did I did the best I could, and it got me into Yale, and then uh, where I met. Uh, Um, this lovely woman who I've been married to for all these years, and, um, she and I worked in the audio-visual center for for a while together, and, uh, magic happened.
0: Go figure, and a couple of kids later and all that fun stuff over time, but you mentioned there about not seeming like you fit in. Was there a certain part you felt like you fit in?
2: Never, never. I was, um... It's 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 you know it's it's a survival skill, um, pure and simple. You know that help. Let me out of here. But uh, if I do, uh, my parents will go nuts, uh, and I will be um, I will be that guy who got thrown out of school. I tried to get thrown out of school. It didn't work.
0: Well, I would say, or well, I would agree that becoming that because according to the interweb. Where we know everything is a hundred percent accurate.
1: <laughs>
0: Last I checked, anyway. Well, you had graduated from Yale in '62, as you mentioned, with an English degree. Then Tulane University with an MA in Theater and Speech. But if I remember the geography, from where Tulane is, that would be in the New Orleans area, correct? And you spent time growing up in that region because your dad, during his uh time of service in the military correct
2: right yeah no i was uh all my uh my siblings were born in new orleans and um my father was in the uh, navy uh during ww2 i i came on the scene a year before he went off to uh, the atlantic on a destroyer escort um and uh so it was it was a weird place to uh to be and i was also the third child and i couldn't figure out um how to how to manage that um so I just sort of uh I created uh, my own persona whatever it was all singing all dancing all amusing
0: now with that being said going to Tulane for your MA and all did it feel like home since you spent time there as a child in the region
2: oh yeah yeah no I I love Tulane and I thought that I'm not even sure the drama school of Tulane still exists but um I had a great time. Uh, I went there on a federal uh, uh, defense act uh, fellowship, and I was supposed to get a PhD, <clears throat> but um, the drama department was getting in so much uh, uh, flack from the uh, from the president and whatnot. I just said, I think I'll bail on this. And I, um, the next thing I knew, I applied for a job at uh, the Shakespeare Theater in Stratford, Connecticut, got the job my wife and i then uh, took our dogs and went back up to connecticut
0: well it's funny but before you went back to school and when you were considering getting your phd before all that happened you were kind of working in my neck of the woods i'm in the philadelphia area and you worked up in the Pottstown area at a place called the hill school and according to the notes since everything is 100 accurate online
2: right yep
0: even though he wasn't one of your students. Apparently Oliver Stone was in that school system at the time.
2: I knew Ollie well, um, because they had a club there, uh, that allowed, uh, seniors, I think it was, could smoke. And I was supposed to be the, one of the, the faculty advisors. (laughs) And I smoked a couple of packs of Lucky's a day anyway. Uh, and Ollie was there and, um, I had no inkling that he was going to follow the career he followed. Uh, he was just another one of the kids smoking.
0: You know, I found it interesting since I have a background in American history and history in general, I reached in a cabinet here. He was actually involved with the obvious standout project for me being JFK, right. which was a big portion of my background as far as the education is concerned. And obviously you mentioned, at the time, some of the turmoil that was going on in the Tulane area during the late 60s. So being that you were well-traveled, let's say, because your dad being in the service, going back to Long Island and New York and everywhere in between, do you feel, especially in that time frame of the 60s and such, from your perspective as a writer and all that, what were your thoughts with everything that was going on during that time period
2: well everything was going on was uh just uh, scary as hell um and uh let's see we had our first son when we moved up to uh, connecticut to uh, be working at the shakespeare theater and um just uh but it was it was crazy because everybody i worked with uh, was worried about being drafted and uh, all kinds of things like that um, and um, I was in the Marine Corps Reserve, um, and uh, so I didn't uh, I didn't uh, have to go anywhere, um, and um, and there there I was. But it was, you know, it's again, it's this this thing about uh, about not belonging. Um, I didn't belong in the Marine Corps any more than I belonged at Yale um, or Milton Academy or anywhere else. It's it's just one of those neuroses of writers. I don't. I don't think most writers are um, uh, are casually laid back and whatnot. But I haven't talked to them all either, so you never know. But it was it was just one weird thing after another. I mean, I, uh, I, I. My first job <clears throat> out of college was working at Benton and Bowles Advertising, uh, where I was uh, reading scripts of the television shows that our um, Crest toothpaste had bought minutes in. And uh, in those days, the sponsor had huge power, and so I would read the scripts and anything that looked like it might up- upset the average Crest toothpaste user, or Ivory Snow, or whatever it was. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, uh, I would, I would call our contact on the West Coast and say uh, they want to change the script so it, you don't have have that reference, whatever it was, in. And, um, and thank God that's changed because now. <laughs> Um, that was when the, the advertiser had all the power and now it's, uh, you know, the networks have all the power. So
0: with that being said, and, you know, with your history of writing and such as far as TV, they had that with the scripts, as far as advertisers having their concerns and having the power, are you aware of they had that in radio as well when shows were popular on the radio?
2: Um, I'm I am sure they did, but I had nothing to do with the the radio thing. But yeah, they had uh, they had people monitoring everything because it was uh, pretty much an atmosphere of fear. Um, you know, you don't want to lose the Crest account. My God, uh, Procter and Gamble, with, or whatever, all of these people. So, and every once in a while, the guys from Cincinnati, I guess that was Procter and Gamble, they would come in and and have meetings. Um, it was just insane. Yeah. But I I ended up. Uh, the the odd thing for me was, when I ended up getting into soap opera, um, there I was on the other side. Now, I was creating stuff with a team, uh, where uh, if that had been back in 1963, um, I would have had to deal with the sponsor all the time. In fact, um, you know, it was just, we had to deal with the, uh, the Nielsen people with the ratings on the shows.
0: Well, with that being said, I guess my next question would be where did the love of creative writing come from, but also what led to doing soap operas such as, because over your career you worked on One Life to Live, All My Children, Guiding Light.
2: Another world.
0: Yeah, so.
2: General Hospital, all of them, yes.
0: So where did the love of creating writing come from? And what led you to the soap operas? Or was it just that I like a paycheck every week to feed my family and such? Uh,
2: no, it came, it came looking for me because after Friday the 13th, um, and uh, I wasn't living on any royalties uh, because of the way it was constructed. But at any rate, um, so there I was. I had written a couple of more screenplays that got bought, uh, and but not made because Hollywood, Hollywood likes to buy things rather than to make things. Um, and so I, I sold a couple of screenplays. And then I got a phone call from uh, a lawyer who I had met uh, doing uh, uh, Friday the 13th. And he said, would you like to write a soap opera? And I said, I have no idea, but I'll have lunch. So I had lunch. Um, uh, first, I had lunch with the head of uh, ABC Daytime. And in those days, the network was everything. Now the networks don't seem to have that much power. But I met Jackie Smith and her uh, assistant uh, for lunch in the executive dining room at the ABC building, um, and what uh, was it? No, CBS. I forget. Anyway, um, so I charmed her, um, and um, and then I went over and talked to Sam Hall, who was the head writer at uh, One Life to Live, and uh, we had lunch, and it was fine, and I they said, well, we'll pay you, what was it? $500 a week to watch the show. So I thought that's cool. And so I, (laughs) and I would go in on Fridays and say what I'd seen and, and uh, how it worked or not worked. And, um, and then they said, well, why don't you come on as a, uh, as a uh, story writer uh, for us. And um, I worked under Sam Hall, uh, who was a legend in the time. Um, And, um, what i found in re- in retrospect, I'm saying that um, we wrote by like, three, four, five people around a table. And it was great fun because um, when I was writing by myself, it was just no fun at all. I'd been trained in improvisational theater and it was much more fun bouncing ideas off of other people and saying, well, what if we did that? And it says, yeah, let's do that. But at the same time, why don't uh, they get caught doing it? Um, and there was this wonderful camaraderie. I mean, of course, there were some people there who were um, had their ego problems, but um, what I did like was uh, I'm not alone. I, I would drive into New York every day. We'd sit around a table and decide what to do with, uh, oh, I don't know, Asa Buchanan and the Buchanan family and all these people, and, um, and it was just great fun. Uh, and the money was good, and so um, it was, it was like really improv uh, because you just, you created this thing together. You didn't own any uh, part of it uh, except, you know, every once in a while I would have a brainstorm, um, which I can I can claim credit for was <clears throat> one of the, when I was at uh, All My Children, <clears throat> one of the problems we had was um, having um Oh, what are we going to do with Bianca if we bring her back? That was Erica's daughter. <clears throat> Pardon me, I'm sorry, my voice is going. But um, it was um, this thing, and we were I was on a phone call with all the other writers and, and, uh, and Agnes Nixon, and, we, and I was just there for about an hour and a half. What are we going to do with Bianca? What are we going to do with Bianca? And I finally said, what if she's gay? And they all said, oh, thank God, yes. Okay, so Bianca became gay because then she wouldn't be competing with her mother um, on screen or any other way. And uh, so it, that was the o- one of the only times when I could say, yes, I did that. Um, but um, it, it it was just this kind of improv thing, and I really loved doing it. And, um, and it was, uh, and the idea that I would keep getting paid was just delightful.
0: Well. That's always nice to continue to get a paycheck, that's for sure. Yep. And with that being said, obviously, I don't know, because I'm not a writer as far as scripts and that kind of thing goes, but Beans, you've done both film and television, specifically soaps and stuff, but also books, as I mentioned in the introduction. What would you say the biggest difference would be in terms of writing for film, and television?
2: Um, well, television is always uh, somebody with a hand on the throttle. Um, and and it's a, it's a constant thing so that, you know, every Monday you go in to get notes from the network uh, and they tell you they didn't like this or they didn't like that and fix this and fix that. Um, and that was very different from um, if you're working on a screenplay, even if you're working with a friend, uh, you wait until almost you're finished with the uh, the first copy of the screenplay uh, and that's the first time you get any feedback uh, whereas uh, in daytime television because we're doing five hours of drama uh, a week and um, and you can't uh, you can't just sort of wait and see you know what it's going to look like after three months you you find out every week
0: right on and obviously you've been associate with the business for many years now from your perspective as a writer what is the biggest changes that you've seen in the business over the time
2: money um for instance uh you know one of the reasons that uh, soap opera uh, has all but vanished except for a few uh, surviving uh, versions um because and i think this is this is what happened when um oh, i don't know nbc abc i forgot who it was but uh, they were bought out uh, by another corporation, and um, one of the stories was said that the uh, the, ex- the uh, network executives met to have dinner with the new people from uh, this other conglomerate, um, and they at some fancy restaurant in New York City in Manhattan. And um, when it, when the meeting was over, you know, this was handshake. Oh, glad to meet you. We're gonna this is gonna be great. All new money and everything else like that. And when Everybody left, um, yes, it was Capital Cities versus, I don't know, CBS or something like that. Um, and uh, when they all left the the, the restaurant, um, all of the network executives had limos waiting for them. And all the guys from Capital City called for taxi cabs. <laughs> and that's when network television learned what was really gonna go on, and it was money. Um, because they were, they were used to, I mean, producers of, of shows would have a, a limo just outside this, the, uh, the studio with its engine running, waiting for, in case the producer wanted to go somewhere. Uh, that ended really quickly. Salaries for a lot of actors uh, were moderated. Um, and so it became less that. And you discovered you could make a lot more profit. I think this is what happened. This is my take on it anyway, that Judge Judy had one set and a little office cubicle too that she sometimes used. And she was making money hand over fist. Uh, The problem with the soap opera is that we had to, um, we had to be limited by the number of sets we could use in any studio. And then if you wanted to change, the network said, well, you can only change three sets a day because it's so expensive getting the sets in from Brooklyn. Um, And so there was just huge costs uh, attached to running a soap opera Unless you wanted to use the same set over and over again, as Judge Judy does to great effect, um, and so th- th- that's that's what I noticed uh, when corporations uh, took over those things um, that were before that they were kind of empires. So it was great fun, um, and then uh, the next thing you know, they got capital cities and capital cities. I think got bought out. Was, I don't know, um, but um, it was the green eye shades began to run TV.
0: So, I'm curious to know, and I'm not the IRS, so I don't need to know specifics. That's not my place. But from a writer's standpoint, and that's part of the rumors with Friday and all that stuff, but money to be made as a writer in general, is it a lucrative business because actors are getting big money and certain departments are getting bigger money? Can a writer see part of that in a normal circumstance
2: and if you're talking pre 19 oh lord what was i doing then um 1980 so this would be as we got to the 90s uh things started getting funny you know when the when the corporations were taking over but yeah no i uh i made hand money hand over fist it was really nice um especially since i had now two sons who had to go to college and things like that Um, and and the regular you know i didn't uh, you know, I didn't have enough to just say, "Okay, screw you all." I'm going to go into a desert island and write something, um, and it was fun. I, I really enjoyed bouncing ideas with other people um, and coming up with things and and saying, "Oh, that's great!" And then let's build this, and then and then they could do that, and then you know, it was like um, you know, d- d- improvisational theater. And um, I really don't like writing by myself. It's uh, it's a pain in the butt because uh, you
0: know, it's just me versus the machine. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Well, speaking of Friday, which I would say most of our fan base probably knows you best from, I heard you quote it somewhere, saying that at the time period when you were taking a job to start writing it, that America was watching family films. However, you found out that to really not be the case. Or another way of saying that was bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, where did that come from? From where you heard America was looking for family films, but that ended up not being the case.
2: Well, I had done um, with Sean Cunningham, uh, because he was just, he lived 25, 30 minutes away from me in Connecticut. And we did. a couple of family films, at least uh, the screenplays for, and we and made a couple, one called Kick and uh, or Manny's Offerings, and I uh, can't remember the other one. Um, <laughs> and oh yeah, Steve Miner came up with a concept, and we did. So we did two family films, and as far as I know, they made almost no money at all. Uh, and even in drive-ins, they weren't uh, draw, drawing them in. And at that point, uh, Sean called and said. Uh, let's make a horror film that seems to be the the most popular genre right now. And uh, so I said, okay, and I sat down and started writing.
0: And obviously, it's a hell of a story and script came out of that. You mentioned Annie's Orphans, which brought on Ari Lehman, who's known as the original Jason, as a child, that came out of the lake, yada, 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 you know the story. You tell a story, though about watching a movie in a theater where you saw half the audience grabbing their coats, where the other half were screaming when Ari came out of the lake. Right. Adrian and all that fun stuff. At the time period, I'm thinking of Halloween a couple years beforehand was a word-of-mouth sensation because there wasn't the internet. How would you say the original Friday was in terms of was it an immediate success or more along the lines of Halloween, where it was a word-of-mouth sensation, where people spread the word and, hey, I got to go see that?
2: The studio put a huge amount of money into the opening uh, so that when I went to the, the, the theater in Milford, Connecticut to see it on its opening weekend, we went on the early show. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned before about uh, people putting on their coats instead of looking at Harry Layman. Lehman, uh, and I went out, and there was a line of about 40, 50, 60 people outside for the next showing, and I said to my wife, I think this is going to be a hit, um, and, and it was, you know, so um, it, uh, I think the 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 commitment of the studio paramount uh to the to the film and to its uh cash possibilities uh really made it uh as much anything i mean yes we did a great job making a movie i thought on a low budget um but the but paramount uh did the best they could at getting this everywhere
0: and you know it's funny i dealt with and also friendly with many folks within the series and one to- of running themes we all seem to notice is when it comes to paramount's involvement with the series how do i put this it almost seems like it almost seems like to be the bastard child of franchises they own but they couldn't ignore it because friday and the series itself brought money to the table and kept the lights on essentially would you say that's a pretty accurate statement and thought process
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and they they took a they took a flyer and it paid off. And uh in in passing, I just want about that last scene in the movie. Um Harry Manfredini, a good friend of mine, and the man who wrote that the music uh that Harry uh interrupted by coming out of the water, uh, just genius. And I I I, I think that Harry is incredibly uh talented and uh, and a lovely man. So,
0: yeah, I never met Harry, but heard nothing but positive things about the man.
2: He made. I think he made that ending. You know, and and, and Sean and all the people in production. So, uh, but it was just. Uh, it was genius.
0: It's funny because that's the first time I heard and thought about the music making the biggest difference in any project, excluding Halloween, whatever the case may be but I have two more questions for you, sir. Okay. First one being that as long as you've been in the entertainment field, and I know people get a bit jaded. If you and that lovely wife of yours decide to go out or whatever the case may be, whether it's the theater, a movie, or whatever it may be, where would Victor Miller's entertainment dollar tend to go?
2: Oh God! Um, in the COVID epidemic, with my did with my know. with my Xfinity account, um, we watch more television than is good for anyone. Um, I I tend to like uh, the the those awful things um, where, the, where it's true crime and they've got actors playing the people who uh, did or didn't kidnap their children and ki- kill them or uh, that. So I, I watch a lot of that. Um, and, um, beyond that, I just, I watch as many movies as, uh, as my wife and I agree on, because she, we have di- very different tastes, uh, needless to say, but it's, um, we, we're, uh, we're, we're hooked.
0: Rightfully so. I would say I'm more of a movie guy instead of TV, but if I do TV, I tend to stick with the History Channel, But well, that's here and or there. But that's also my background. But my final question for you is, and I don't know if you can answer this, and obviously I want to be respectful of that, but when things are settled one way or another, do you have a goal in mind or things with licensing, the name that you would like to do? I know it's tricky, but do you have something in your head that you'd like to see go forward?
2: Yes. That's a one-word answer.
0: Fair enough. If people want to, and I know you don't use Facebook and such, but is there a place people can check out what's going on with Vitter Miller?
2: Not really. Um, I'm on um, uh, one of the things. I forgot I got it off of Facebook a long time ago. Um, But uh, I'm... I'm, um, I'm just a father of two sons. I got a grandson who's a graduate student student at uh, Long Beach, um, and uh, I'm um, I'm just having a, a lovely time. I uh, I haven't written anything for publication in oh decades I don't think um, because not decades but at least a decade um, that I've I've had the fun out of it. Um, and I enjoy just, uh, being, um, independently wealthy, I guess is the best thing you can say. Um, so.
0: There is nothing wrong with enjoying the fruits of your labor, sir. But I will say this, that he actually does have a website, fitthermiller.com, which does go more into detail about projects he was involved with. But I do want to say thank you for the time, Sir Mazutoff, for the birthday and the upcoming big anniversary. As I would think, that is a goal that everybody strives to get to and reach.
2: It is. It is amazing. I have. Um, I I still have the mind of a thirteen year old, so uh, it's very strange this whole thing i i've never been 82 before but of course i was never 81 until last year so it's very strange
0: and that's probably why in your words that the missus has a several orders of haley's waiting for her but that's above my perigree to figure out there sir thank you sir appreciate the time
2: thank you my pleasure
1: exciting, and so glad that they are starting to make a positive impact. Little Bean Soapery is a woman-owned small business based in Northeast Pennsylvania. Little Bean Soapery does so much as all products are handcrafted and offer many different things for both men and women. Soaps, scrubs, body butters, bath bombs, solid cologne, and much more. Little Bean Soapery also does things for special occasions such as birthdays, Mother's Day, Father's Day, and special seasonal gift sets. But also, let's not forget large orders for party favors by request. The great things about all products is that they are crafted to be nourishing on the skin. If you wish to check them out, please feel free to visit littlebeansopery.com. Any questions, please feel free to also email littlebeansopery at gmail.com for custom inquiries and or ask anything else you wish. Tell them that Elena from Crazy Train Radio sent ya. Hey, campers, this is Ari Lee, the first Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. Jason never dies.